Jesus says, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while when you will see me. And because I go to the father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you and father we pause and ask as always just that you'd help us to continue now to worship as we sang and prayed and fellowship lord we we want our time of worship to continue now as we open the word of god that we would have a reverent heart towards you and just a desire to give you our attention to believe you are worthy to listen to and that we'd want to hear what you would say to us personally through your inspired word that you've given to us. So as always, we ask that your Holy Spirit be our teacher, that you bless your word as we open it together this morning and speak personally and directly to each of our hearts by that demonstration of your spirit and power. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I don't think anyone enjoys difficulty or sorrow, yet though obviously to some extent we all have to go through our fair share on occasion of struggles and difficulty and sorrow, the good news is this, amidst those experiences, we also during those times can experience joy. We're able in those occasions to learn the power of prayer in ways that we don't maybe when things are a little bit more easy. And certainly even in the midst of the struggles and the storms, we also can find internal peace to overcome the struggle, whatever it may be that we're going through. And I think that's some of the lessons really that we'll see Jesus teaching as he's sharing here with these disciples and now specifically again predicting what is about to come within a matter of just a few hours in the days ahead of them what's going to begin to transpire as he's predicting their experiences to them again remember our background it's the kind of topic of what we've been looking at from chapter 13 to this point Jesus is now just a few hours away from his suffering uh, as the result of the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, from being brutally tortured, and then ultimately being crucified as he would die for the sins of the world, as he would be giving his offering of his life as the replacement for us as he suffered on our behalf upon the cross. And he has been sharing, knowing that the hours are drawing close to this time where he's going to be taken away from his disciples. He's been sharing a lot of very pertinent truths with the 12 disciples. Now, at this point, Judas has left. He's now with the 11. 
and he's sharing a lot of uh, important concepts and truths. He's teaching them lessons to help prepare them to cope with what's coming in the days ahead. And he's now kind of bringing this conversation to a close as he comes to the end of chapter 16. You look with me in verse 16 as Jesus is kind of wrapping up this discussion privately with his disciples. He says to them, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now, we've seen all throughout this conversation, Jesus seems to keep coming back to this same subject, indicating to them again and again that he is soon leaving and would be heading back to heaven to the throne of God from where he originally came. Now, since you and I this morning have the benefit of being on the other side of the first coming of Jesus Christ, having a fuller revelation of his first coming in the plan of God, we understand a little more all of what that meant and what would unfold and even the process of kind of how all these things would happen. We understand that Jesus was going to die on the cross for our sins, that he was going to be buried in a tomb for three days, and that then he would rise from the dead and then ascend back into heaven to where he now is alive, reigning at the right hand of the Father. But for them, this wasn't all clear. So as he says to them here, verse 16, a little while and you will not see me. We understand that he means because he's about to die and he'll be buried and hidden away from them in a tomb for three days. And then again, a little while, he said, you will see me again. The idea is because he would rise back from the dead and then ultimately he would be ascending back into heaven where he would be with the Father again. So verse 17, they, trying to put this together, it says some of the disciples said among themselves, what is this that he's saying to us? A, a little while and you won't see me, and then again a little while and you will see me. Are we, are we playing hide and seek here? Peekaboo, here I am. There I am. Now I am in a God. And, and they're not trying to, you know, trying to put this together in their minds rationally. Is Again, they're not on the other side of these events as you and I are. So they don't fully grasp in some ways how all this is going to take place. So they're saying, what is this he's saying? Verse 18, therefore they said, what is this he says a little while? We, they admit we do not know what he is saying. So with their limited understanding, the disciples are trying to figure out exactly what Jesus is describing. And you can see here they're having trouble putting the pieces together and kind of connecting the dots at this point. They're genuinely wrestling with trying to grasp what he's predicting and how all these events are going to unfold. And they're asking, it tells us here, each other what this meant. What's he inferring to when he says these things? They humbly admit there, you see it in verse 18 in the text, where they say, we don't know what he's saying. In other words, they are making an indication here that they do not know and understand. But here's the thing. They would in due time. They don't understand now. They don't grasp it all fully. They can't put all the pieces together at this point. But as things unfolded and as more time passed and as the Spirit would give them enlightenment, they would soon fully understand it. But currently, right now, they don't know and they have questions about the things that are ahead. And I don't know about you, but I find somewhat a little bit of comfort. Doesn't it make you feel good to know that even Jesus' disciples, the apostles themselves, they did not at times know 
everything and they weren't 100% sure all the time what Jesus meant when he said things. That should make you feel way better when you read your Bible sometimes. To read the things that are said in the Word of God and say, I don't know if I 100% do understand what the Lord's saying there. The disciples didn't always grasp everything that Jesus was saying in their humanity. There were occasions when they lacked information and the ability to understand and comprehend things. There were circumstances we see here when they didn't know what lie ahead. They didn't know what was going to happen in their future to where they humbly had to say things like, truly, we don't know what that means. And we don't know what's going to happen. And can I just say how liberating to know that we don't always have to have in this life all the answers to everything. And that's okay. We don't always have to have all the answers right now. At this moment, sometimes there may be more revelation and more clarity that will come in a little while. And God has a timing. The Bible says he makes all things beautiful in his time. And after maybe some more events unfold and the timing is right, then we will connect the dots. And then the pieces will be put together and we will be able to see. But it's okay to have questions that linger and things we don't fully grasp. Sometimes that's part of what keeps us living by faith. Imagine that. That God would have the audacity to actually make me live by faith. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so sometimes we do have to choose to keep walking by faith and letting God give us more clarity, progressive revelation. So be careful. You know, if, if you have to put all the pieces together and you need the answer to everything, there's a part of that can not only be a little bit prideful sometimes, but it also can kind of eliminate a process God's trying to do where he's saying, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, just keep acknowledging him. He'll make your past straight, and in time, this would become more clear, but how liberating to know that it's okay to not always have the details. Well, look what happens, verse 19. It says, now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and so therefore he said to them, are you inquiring, talking among yourselves about what I've said a little while, and you won't see me, and again a little while you will see me? He says to them, I I I'm fully aware and he recognized that they wanted to know more, just like he knows that we want to know more on occasion. And Jesus knew what questions they had. He observed them asking among themselves, trying to get answers to their, their understanding to a greater degree. It says he also, verse 19 there, it says he also knew they desired to ask him, but for whatever reason they were refraining from asking him and just dialoguing among themselves. And Jesus is now, we're going to see, going to supply to them some of the answers that they needed at that hour, at that given moment in time, which they were not, interestingly enough, able to obtain from talking amongst one another as just fellow human beings. And as we look at this together, it reminds me how Jesus knows the questions that you have. He knows the things that I'm curious about and want to understand. Uh, and he knows that we desire answer and clarity on things. And please hear me, certainly, nothing wrong, certainly we can learn things from one another as fellow followers of the Lord. And sometimes as we dialogue with each other and maybe talk to a more mature Christian or conversate about things, sometimes as we ask things, we can understand and we get some questions answered for us. But Jesus wants you to also know you can come directly to him. 
You have access to go right to him. Jesus says he knew they were talking among themselves, but they desired to ask him. And it's almost as if Jesus is going to answer them saying, listen, uh, you could just ask me directly. I'd more than gladly speak to you. I would love to communicate to you. And, and how awesome to know that Jesus wants us to know we can come to him and he will answer things for us. That he'll at times share things with us. And quite honestly, he'll give you probably a much better answer than someone else would. He can probably give you a lot more clarity and a lot more understanding and the Lord wants to and is willing to speak. In fact, Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you'll find. One of my favorite Bible passages from the Old Testament is Jeremiah 33 where there it says that the Lord speaking to Jeremiah the prophet while he was stuck in prison, not a pleasant place, wondering why am I stuck in prison, Lord, if I'm trying to serve you? And it says in that hour that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah saying this to him, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Imagine that invitation. God says, call to me. I, I'll answer. Try it. And he says, and I'll show you what you don't know. I know that there's things you don't know. I'm a God of revelation. I want to show you things that you don't know. And what an interesting thing here is Jesus, knowing they're desiring to ask him, but not what he means by this. So verse 20, he's going to begin to give them some clarity now a little bit more. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So Jesus is predicting that their experience, which is about to come to pass in the midst of the, the hours ahead, that in connection to his death and resurrection, what they were going to experience personally and what was going to be happening around them in the world. As Jesus was about to be mocked, and to suffer and to be beaten and to be crucified resulting in his death, he says the world, they're going to rejoice because many of them were wanting to rid themselves of the presence of Jesus. So he says the world will be rejoicing in the hours ahead, but the disciples as they would look on and watch the tragic mistreatment of Jesus and see this one whom they loved so much being mistreated and beaten and suffering and his beard ripped out of his face and his body brutalized and a crown of thorns beaten into his skull and pierced and hung upon a, a, a cross like a, a, a vile criminal would, as they watched that, they would have the exact opposite experience. That They would find themselves just utterly thrust into grief and to sorrow and it appeared the one that they had relied upon as such a stable rock that was the stability among them, it seemed, it's going to seem in the hours ahead like he's utterly defeated. And they're going to feel very overwhelmed and disappointed. And they're going to find themselves grieved with sorrow as they watch Jesus suffering and being put to death. So Jesus says, while the world's rejoicing, he says, you will weep and lament and will be sorrowful. He's predicting how they're going to be plunged into a time of great disappointment and a time of great sorrow, a time of tremendous sorrow and disappointment. And anyone, just like what they're about to see with Jesus, who's ever watched or experienced the death of a loved one in your life, you know what it's like as you watch the death of a loved one in your life and you're losing them who you're so attached to. You know what it's like to be plunged into tremendous sorrow 
And, and the grief that is attached to that and the weeping that comes and anyone who's endured a great personal disappointment when it just seems like the world bottoms out and all is lost, which is what the experience is going to be like as Jesus is taken from them and they feel it seems like everything had just failed. And as the disappointment came over them, that can cause tremendous sorrow. But that sorrow that they're about to experience was actually all part of God's overall plan and process. In other words, it was necessary to go through the sorrow in order to experience the fullness of the purpose and the plan of God that was on the other side of that. And here Jesus wants them to understand. That's why he promises there to them. Look at it in verse 20. He says, you're going to be sorrowful, but look what he says. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. When? When a few days later, this same Jesus who they watched die would reappear victorious as he overcame the power of death and revealed himself as being back alive from the dead. And that sorrow would be turned into tremendous joy as they were now celebrating what God had done. And the miracle of how Jesus had come back from the dead, in fact, it was the necessary experience of the sorrow, listen, that was actually the seedbed in order to produce joy. It was almost necessary for them to have such a depth of sorrow so that they could have such a greater appreciation and an experience of joy as they saw what God brought out of it and ultimately what the plan of the Lord was. It actually caused a greater extreme of joy. And Jesus is encouraging them here not to fear the sorrow because it's going to yield something way better in the end. And let me say this morning... The same Jesus, the same God who changes not, is still in the process of taking sorrow in this life and turning it into joy. And there are times in our lives where maybe we found ourselves through a difficulty, a hardship, a disappointment, where we were in tremendous sorrow and how somehow the Lord works in a way and he takes that sorrow and he transforms it into incredible joy on the other side of the next season of the process. And it's almost like when we're so joyful, we realize, oh my goodness, if I hadn't been that sorrowful, I don't think I'd be this excited about how the Lord took the darkest, most difficult thing and now he brought this out of it? This is incredible. And sometimes it's almost that contrast there. That's the helpful part in the process. And let me say this to you as well. If it doesn't happen in this life, I tell you it will happen to the greatest degree when you enter into heaven. Where your sorrows will be turned into joy because there is no more sorrow or pain or suffering or death when we enter into the glory of the Lord. So Jesus says your sorrow is going to be turned into joy. And then he gives an analogy. Verse 21, a woman when she is in labor, he says, has sorrow because her hour has come. It's actually the hour for pain and sorrow and anguish. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, he says, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being, her child, has been born into this world. So he uses this analogy of a woman enduring not only just the pregnancy process, but particularly the pain and difficulty of labor and delivery and how that anguish and pain and sorrow fades very quickly in the memory of the mother she gives birth and receives the reward of her labor which is her child now I've observed and I put the quotes around observed this process three times I was there I watched I tried to say a few helpful things I didn't do very much 
But I've observed the process and the anguish and the pain and the difficulty and what you ladies go through. But the reward, how quickly, it's amazing how quickly the transition comes of the incredible joy that floods into the soul when you then receive that child as the reward of the fruit of your labor. And Jesus is using this as an analogy, as a picture of how he was going to accomplish this as they sorrowed over his death but rejoiced over his resurrection and how he was able and the Father were able to take their sorrows, their deepest sorrows, and to transform them into incredible joy on the other side as God worked in the midst of this. And this is a really good reminder, honestly, for all of us, because perhaps right now, I don't know, maybe for some or a few of you this morning, perhaps right now you are in the midst of kind of a labor process. And right now you are in the midst of some anguish or difficulty, and it's hard and it hurts, or maybe you're dealing with something that's overwhelming, and that's what it's like from what I observed in the labor process. When it starts, you can't stop it. You're stuck in it. You got to go through it. You can't catch your breath. All your reason goes out the window and, and, and things get really intense. And you, you just, you would do anything to escape the pain, and the, but you can't. And sometimes we get thrust into something and it's like a labor process. And we find ourselves dealing with something hard or difficult and we're wrestling through it. And I want to say to you, God does not waste human suffering. God's not mean. He's not cruel. And God may allow suffering. He may allow difficulty, but he never wastes a trial. He never lets human suffering happen in vain. He will produce or birth something good out of that ultimately. Something on the other side of it. He may allow struggle or sorrow for a time, but he always desires to restore joy in the end. Psalm 30 says this, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Psalm 125, or excuse me, 126 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Perhaps you can relate to that experience in your life when you say, man, wow, that's so true. I remember a time when it just seemed like tears and hardship and struggle, but somehow out of that, something incredible came in the end. And maybe this morning you are in the midst of something and you need to trust and believe that for your future, that right now you're struggling, suffering, sorrowing over something and you need to believe, listen, it's a season and there is something coming on the horizon and if you give the Lord time to work, something beautiful can come on the other side of that. So Jesus says again, reiterating verse 22 there, therefore now you have sorrow. But I will see you again, he says to them, and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one can take from you. So he wasn't just going to give them a joy, but notice a joy that could not be stolen from them. He says, you're going to receive a joy when you see me again alive from the dead. And he says that joy would give you a constant joy, a joy that's abiding, that remains, that no one can take from you, that nothing can rob from you. Jesus gave these disciples a reason to rejoice, which nobody would take from them. No matter what was happening in their life or what people did to them, they could always rejoice in the Lord. He's alive. He's victorious. 
Our Jesus is back from the dead and he's able and present to help and assist us. And not just that, he's going to the Father to prepare a place for us and he said he's coming back to get us again. And this always gave them something to rejoice in, the realization of who Jesus is and what he's able to do and the fact that he's coming back gives a person a reason to rejoice in this life despite all the struggles and hardships that we go through in the midst of it. Now, referring to this time after he would rise back from the dead, Jesus then goes on, verse 23, to say, and in that day, you will ask me nothing. So he's indicating here, we'll see, that a transition's about to happen. He says, in that day, when I'm back from the dead, when I've risen and I've then actually ascended back to the Father, making requests for help was going to change for the disciples. Now think about this. Up to this point, Jesus was with them in the body of of flesh as a man. So whenever they needed help, they just asked Jesus for help. Whenever they needed assistance or they wanted something, they just talked to Jesus about it because he was there in the flesh. But now a transition is going to be happening because he's going to be raising from the dead and ascending back into heaven where he would not be with them physically, but just alive spiritually. So Jesus says in that day, when that change happens, he says, you will ask me nothing. In other words, I won't be here, as I always have been, for you to inquire and ask help from. But don't worry, he says, going on, verse 23, most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. In other words, you have not had to operate in this way, but ask, he says, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So Jesus assured them they could just as simply and easily come directly to the Father in heaven as his representatives and they could ask the Father for what they needed. They could come to him in prayer asking the Father in Jesus' name. Now we've seen this a few times in this upper room teaching Jesus has given. We've talked about this, what it means to ask in Jesus' name. It does not just infer tagging the name of Jesus at the end of a prayer and assuming that if we tag the name of Jesus at the end of the prayer, that that's some magical formula that therefore obligate God to do whatever we want. As if we're like name dropping, you know, where maybe you, you know, are the, the, the son of a very powerful, influential individual or wealthy individual, and you can get your way by just dropping somebody's name. And, and the person, oh, I really don't want to do that for you, but since you dropped that name, I guess I kind of have to now. And, and unfortunately, there are people who give the indication that this is kind of how we can pray. Like we just drop the name of Jesus or if we shout the name of Jesus loud enough or we claim it in Jesus' name that, that somehow God goes, well, I mean, you dropped the name. so As if somehow God in his weakness must be compelled to do whatever we want and this can be used to abuse what prayer is supposed to be in many ways. No, that to ask in Jesus' name, a person's name is a representation of the person. When you say someone's name, you think of, oh, I know that person, that, that's who they are. And, and to ask in Jesus' name means, as we've talked about, to ask in accordance with the nature of Jesus. It's asking in his name is like asking in his nature. It's asking things in accordance with who Jesus is and what he represents as our king and asking things in alignment with his purposes wanting his desires and his will to be done. So to ask things in Jesus' name is asking what he would ask for and what he would desire. And when we pray in that way in Jesus' name, 
Jesus assures, verse 23, if you pray in that way in accordance with who I am and what things I would desire, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. In other words, the Father delights to answer prayers in alignment with the purposes of Jesus, with the desires of Jesus. God grants those requests with his answer in an abundant way of assistance. And Jesus says up to this point there, verse 24, you've not been exercising this privilege, but he exhorts them, listen, he says, ask now and your joy will be full. He says, ask, you'll receive and your joy will be full. So as they exercise that privilege of asking God the Father in the name of Jesus, I want you to take notice here, one wonderful byproduct of praying and not just praying, but praying consistently and properly is Jesus says, you actually get to see God work. Because you'll ask, and then you'll receive. And he says, when you experience that process, your joy will be made full. You'll be overflowing with joy. Why? Because to see prayer answered produces a very joyful experience inside a person's heart. For a person to be able to come before God and to ask God for things, and then to actually see God do what you asked Him in your family, or in the life of your children, or in your spouse, or in your job, or to see someone get saved, or the Lord do something, or God provide, and you went to God, and you actually exercise the privilege you have to pray, and you bring your prayer before the Lord, and then you see that you receive what you actually ask, that God listened to you, to you specifically, to exactly what you needed or what you asked, and to experience answered prayer how that brings joy jesus says your joy will be full it lifts your spirit and encourages you it fills you with spiritual enthusiasm say wow the living god listened to me and it fills you with an incredible joy as you see answered prayer from god who listens perhaps this morning if you're lacking joy in your life perhaps maybe being a little more committed to prayer might make you a little more joyful actually taking the initiative and the discipline to be a little more serious about taking time to come to God and ask Him to work in your life and in situations through personal times of prayer or when people of God get together in times of prayer and you have an opportunity to engage in making requests before the throne of God because listen, when we let our voices be heard not on this earth but in heaven then God gives things. Then God answers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. We love to make our voices heard here. We're great at that. But when our voices are heard in heaven, that's when things begin to unfold because we begin to receive. In challenging times, we should be compelled to pray. Jesus, again, in Matthew 7, says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be open. He says, Whoever asks, receives if you seek you find if you knock the door will be open to you and he says which of you being evil he says if your son asks you for a, a piece of bread he says you don't give him a scorpion if, if he asks you for you know a fish you don't give him a rock here's i chew on a rock how about that instead and he said if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask 
how much more? The idea is the contrast. Do we want to see God do good things? Do we want to see works of revival and spiritual renewal? Luke 18, Jesus says, then men ought always to pray and not lose heart and to realize the joy of seeing answered prayer. Jesus speaks of it here, that wonderful experience available to us. So verse 25, he says, and these things I spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when the Spirit would indwell them, when he says, I'll no longer have to speak in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. So soon they'd be able to understand more direct truths. He goes on, verse 26, and that day you will ask in my name. And I don't say that I shall have to pray to the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. So Jesus, what he's doing here, verse 26 and 27, he wants to clarify because he doesn't want them to think wrongly this transition of now asking the Father in the name of Jesus kind of indicates that uh, somehow the Father loves them less than, than Jesus did or that the Father was going to be reluctant to help them in some ways. Jesus was so quick to always assist them when he was with them that the change that's going to happen in their prayer lives was not going to be an inferior condition. What he's saying here in these verses is when you ask the Father for things in my name, he says, please understand, I'm not saying that when you ask him in my name that I'm going to have to, he says there, go pray to the Father for you. The idea he He's wanting to say, don't think that when you ask, I'm going to have to go plead with the father and twist his arm and be there begging him and pressuring him because he's unwilling to help you. And therefore, I got to convince him to help you. He's saying, no, 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 please don't misunderstand. Verse 27, look at it. He says, the father himself loves you. He loves you just as much as I do. Jesus is trying to say to them. The Father loves you and he knows that you love me, that you're my friends and you're my followers. And he wants them to be assured that the Father loves them deeply and he wants to provide help to the friends of his son. And this morning, I hope you know, I love verse 27, look at it there. I hope you know the Father in heaven loves you. The Father loves you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced genuine love from someone else or you don't feel anyone else genuinely loves you. God does. The Father loves you. He loves you with an undescribable love, a love that he would give his own son to demonstrate the depths of his love. And I hope you know today as well what Jesus was trying to say to them is that God is not reluctant to help you. Don't ever think there's reluctancy in God's heart to want to help and let that hold you back from coming to God and asking God whatever you want to ask him. That somehow he's reluctant, that he's kind of a little bit hesitant because of your behavior. Look, God is not reluctant in his attitude at all towards helping us. I love Romans chapter 8. It says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? The implied idea is God is for us. And so therefore it doesn't matter who's against us. And then he goes on to say this, listen, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? In other words, the Spirit of God is prompting Paul to say this, if God didn't hold back Jesus, that's the best he had. And he said if he didn't spare his own son, and reserve his own son with a reluctant attitude. Say, I mean, I'll give him a lot, but I am not giving him my, I'm not giving him Jesus. I'm not giving him my only begotten son. I mean, hey, we got to draw a line somewhere with those people. He says, if God didn't spare his own son, 
how shall you not with him freely give us all things? He's trying to say, God gave his best on the front side. God gave you the best thing he could, the most generous, kind, sacrificial thing he could on the front when he gave Jesus. If he's willing to give Jesus, Paul's trying to say, do you think he won't throw in the little things of life? Do you think he won't listen and help when you bring to him the smaller, more insignificant things? It's an, an encouragement that we would feel comfortable coming to God because we know he's gracious and giving and that he wants to help because of that kind of hard attitude. And Jesus says, please don't think my father's reluctant. He says, he loves you. And he'll answer Jesus is wanting them to know. He says, verse 28, I came forth from the father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. I tell you, verse 28 there is probably an incredible summary statement. You could just meditate on that, declaring all of who Jesus is and exactly what he came to do. I mean, look at it together with me. He says, I came forth from the Father. That indicates Jesus' deity, that he came from heaven. I've come into this world. That describes his incarnation, that he as God became man and took on human flesh and took on a human nature being God. Again, he says, I leave the world. That describes his death and burial as he died sacrificially. And then he says, and then I go to the Father. That's his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. In one statement, Jesus summarizing this, and so therefore the disciples said to him, see, now you're speaking plainly, using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you by this, we believe that you came forth from God. So they express their faith and seeming enlightenment and say, wow, right on, Lord. Now, now we got it. Now that's clear. We're, we're picking up what you're laying down now, Lord. We, that, that's sensible. That makes sense to us. We understand and, and we're confident now, they say, that by this we can believe that you came forth from God. And Jesus answered, do you now believe? <laughs> Yeah, the one reason they go, are you, Oive, are you kidding me? Now you finally believe? Now you find, Jesus here is also somewhat implying, we'll see in the next verse, that their faith that they think is so strong, now we believe, Lord, well, this all, we got it now, we, it's all the dots are connected, that in a matter of hours, their faith they thought was so strong was going to show the shallowness as they would crumble under the pressure in the time ahead. Look at verse 32. He says, Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, and now has come, that you will be scattered each to his own and leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Do you notice what Jesus is doing there? He's predicting their spiritual failure. He's predicting in advance that in a matter of hours they would abandon him and that he was fully aware of their failure before they even made the mistakes that they were about to make. They thought they were quite committed to Jesus. Their love for the Lord was strong and their loyalty and faith was very deep. But Jesus says, the truth be told, he says, the hours come that you will all be scattered and each one of you will abandon me. As Jesus was arrested and mistreated later that night in fear of suffering themselves, all the disciples... The Gospels record, abandon the Lord. Even Peter, with all of his bravado and so sure that he was committed, even Peter pulled away and denied the Lord. When times got difficult to walk with Jesus, each one of them crumbled under the pressure. They turned away from the Lord. Jesus experienced his closest companions 
forsaking him. In the midst of the hardest time in his life, they left Jesus when he needed them to be most loyal, leaving Jesus to face the most difficult hours of his life all alone with those who should have been the most supportive from him. Yet, notice what Jesus says. He says, verse 32, and yet I'm not alone because I, because the Father, excuse me, says, is with me. Though all his human relationships had failed, Jesus says, do you know how I will be sustained in that hour? Not by a human relationship, but by a heavenly relationship. He says, because the presence of my Father and his companionship, that is what will sustain me. He drew from God and relationship with the Father in heaven what unreliable and failing people could not supply. And can I tell you, that's very important. From Jesus' words here, there are certainly two very important lessons. The first one is this, is Jesus is fully aware of all of our times of failure. Before we even fail, he knows how we're going to fail, the extent we're going to fail to. He knows that we're not going to be faithful to him at the different seasons we were in our life. And it may surprise us, disappoint us, discourage us, frustrate us, but it's not a shock to the Lord. Jesus is more familiar with my sin than I am because he died 2,000 years ago on the cross for all of my sin before I really got going. And he said, it's finished. So when I sin, I'm shocked and frustrated. And he says, yeah, you're shocked and frustrated because you think you're better than what you really are. Wait till you see what you do next month or maybe next hour. And Jesus knows we're going to fail. How wonderful that he knows our failures and shortcomings, but yet he loves us. And listen, and he remained faithful and loyal and reliable and he didn't crumble under the pressure so that you and I could be alleviated from the punishment we deserve because we often do. And he loves us and he'll never leave us or forsake us. He knows our mistakes before we make them. And secondly, we see from Jesus here that whenever we feel abandoned, forsaken by people as he was, always remember, just like Jesus, you're not alone. You're not alone. Because the Father in heaven is still with you. And no matter where you're at or what's going on or who's forsaken you or who's hurt you or who's abandoned you or who's broke up with you or who's left you or who's cheated on you or who's turned the knife in your back, you are not alone because the Father is with you. A heavenly Father who's reliable and, and, and committed will never abandon His children and He will always be there. His presence will continue and you and I must learn to draw from a heavenly relationship what you cannot 100% rely on, listen, with any breathing human being. Because we may say, oh, I'm committed, faithful to the end. Do you know how many times I've heard that? There is one person who you can 100% rely on. It's God. It's God. But you don't ever have to be alone. You don't ever have to be truly alone because the presence of God is always available to be with you no matter what's going on in your life. And Jesus then says, verse 33, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, he says, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So as Jesus wraps up this teaching, these things, he said, I've been saying them to you so that you may have peace in the midst of hardship 
and know that I'm able to help you to overcome the trials and tribulations. Three things he kind of promised us in that last verse there as he makes his closing statement in this teaching, the reality of them encountering problems. That's the first thing he promises. The reality of encountering problems. He says, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. That's a promise. It's not our favorite Bible promise, but it is a Bible promise. In this world, while you're still in this world, Jesus says, you're going to have tribulation. Trials, troubles, struggles, suffering. Since the Garden of Eden, this is a fallen, sinful world. So because of that, Part of this life experience on this planet includes struggles, problems, sickness, pain, failing bodies, disease, death, hardship, tragedy. To some degree, in various seasons, we all experience a measure of hardship. Jesus said, and look, to know that's kind of liberating too, because then when it happens, you're like, what's going on, man? Why is life hard? Jesus said it's going to be hard. It, it's going to be hard sometimes. You don't have to think you did something wrong or God's mad. He's not mad at you. He loves you. Life's just hard. It is hard. And we have to know that we have to realize we're going to experience problems. The good news is, is that in those problems, Jesus wants to help. The second thing he promises in verse 33 is we have an opportunity to experience peace. An opportunity to experience peace because he says in this world you're going to have tribulation but he says in me you can have peace. While you're in the world struggling, you know, experiencing hardship and difficulty and pain and problems, Jesus says in the midst of that, in me you may have peace in the midst of the stormiest times in this world. That term in me there is a relational term. In me speaks of being in a relationship because typically when we face problems, Right? It causes stress in our lives. And we feel discouraged and disheartened and defeated and anxious and overwhelmed and fearful. And Jesus says, but though that storm's raging around you, if you are together with me in a relationship with me, you can find peace in the midst of those things. An internal peace. Yes, we'll still be in the hardships, but even while in the hardship, you can experience peace even as you're enduring the problems. And that comes by being in a relationship with Jesus. It's only found in him. My heart breaks for people who don't know the Lord. I can't imagine. I can't imagine going through life's trials and trying to muscle it out on your own. I, mean, I just can't imagine how stressful and anxious and overwhelming that must be at some times. This morning, if you're not in a relationship with God I want to tell you something. Not only will life be hard and we have problems, you will never have peace. You'll never have any peace inside. The place to begin is to find peace by entering into a relationship with the Prince of Peace, which is Jesus. So that even though life's hard, you can have a peace within, an internal rest in your soul by coming to Jesus and letting him give you that peace. And if you're a Christian this morning... Notice that though you may be living for Jesus, you still may go through difficult and stormy waters. But the way to gain peace and the way to regain our peace is in Jesus. In relationship with Him, seeking Him, receiving from Him the peace that we need. 
And the third thing Jesus promises in the end of the verse here is he says to them, you can know that you can have the ability like me to prevail because he says in this world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Yes, life is hard. Yes, there's trials and tribulation. But he says, listen, I've overcome. It's Nikeo. It's where we get our English word Nike. To conquer, to prevail over things. Jesus says, listen, my entrance into this world, all of my accomplishments in this world, everything that I came and did for all of you, he says, I overcame the whole world. Sin and death and power and difficulty and trials and hardships. Jesus is wanting us to know of his victory and to take courage in that. He says, "Take you be encouraged, he says. You celebrate this, not because of what you have to do to get by, but because of my victory that I've overcome the world. Here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, he says, I overcame everything in this world that has the power to overcome you. Everything in this world that has the power to overcome you, I already overcame it all for you. And he says, so in me you can have peace and in me I can give you victory for those things. I love 1 Corinthians 15 regarding Jesus' resurrection. It says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, this morning, hardships, difficulties, trials, they come, but Jesus overcame everything. So instead of us being overcome by things, we can be overcomers. This morning, maybe something keeps overcoming you and you can't overcome it. Jesus overcame it and he can help you overcome it. You don't have to be overcome by it. Jesus can give you that victory. Let's stand. Let's pray together.